We read scripture this morning from Romans chapter 14. We hear the inspired word of God in Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received them, him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day To the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth, is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of this passage, 
as well as others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 13, question and answers 33 and 34. It's found in the back of our Psalters on pages 8 and 9. Question 33, why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord, because he hath redeemed us both soul and body from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 14 here establishes the high position of prominence that God gave to Jesus Christ, his son. There's only one mediator. We've noted that in the early Lord's days. There's only one Jesus we established. In Lord's Day 11. Only one Deliverer. Only one Savior. There's only one Christ we established in Lord's Day 12. Ordained of the Father. Anointed with the Spirit as prophet, priest, and king. And now we establish this fact. There is only one Lord. The only begotten Son of God. We are children of God. But only by grace. Through the wonder of adoption. Now, this is an important confession that we make this morning. That we're not natural children, but we're adopted children. And we rejoice in that wonder. And as those who are brought into the family of God, we confess then with joy the lordship of Jesus Christ. The glorious news of the gospel is that God has taken us and brought us into his family. In mercy, in grace... He's embraced us. And He's given unto us to know the wonder of life within that family and all the blessings of it as well as an eternal inheritance. Through the blood of the Spirit, through the blood of the Son, the Spirit of the Son applies all those blessings and assurances to us so that we believe, I am a child of God. Jehovah God is my Father For Jesus' sake. Because Jesus is God, and because of that wonder by which He's adopted us into His family, we acknowledge He's my Lord. He's the one whom I serve. As Christ's possession, I bow before Him. And I acknowledge Him as the one who is Lord of my life. Remember what Thomas said after being convicted that Jesus was God. He said, my Lord and my God. When he saw that Jesus truly was God, he knew then that he was not Lord of his own life. Jesus was his Lord. He controls our lives. He knows what's best for us. He controlled the events of the last week, the last month, the last year of our lives. And he will continue to control everything that happens going forward as our Lord. We look at that beautiful truth. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Noting, first of all, that he rules us as Lord. Secondly, that we're willing servants. He works by his Spirit in our hearts, that willingness. And finally, the privileged 
confession this is, that we can call him Lord is possible only by the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Jesus Christ is Lord by virtue of his Godhead. As the Son of God, he rules everything. Nothing is outside of his sovereign domain. Again, the events that take place in the whole of our life are all ordained by Jesus Christ as Lord. And the focus of the sermon this morning on the basis of Lord's Day 13 is Jesus' lordship over his church. And then personally, the confession that you and I make concerning the fact that he is my Lord. Now that lordship is a lordship of grace. We can talk about the fact that he's Lord over the whole world, and that's true. But what we specifically focus on this morning is his lordship over his church. And that first has to do with the way in which Jesus was made Lord. Jesus is made Lord of all, not by virtue of anything of man. He's not Lord because he was a good man and because he did good things and because he maintained a good reputation. He's not Lord because he commanded authority. He spoke and people realized this one has authority. He's not Lord because of anything of men. That men would figure out, hey, this guy, he's willing, he's, he's one that we should follow, and therefore let's esteem him and let's make him our ruler and our leader. That's the way it goes with some. They see gifts, they see abilities in a man, and they say, that man, he's set apart to be a ruler, to be someone to whom we would look up. Jesus' lordship is not dependent upon man doing something in order to establish him as lord. As though we need to be busy now establishing him as Lord. Otherwise, he'll never be able to be Lord. His Lordship is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. There's nothing we can do to add to the glory of God or to the Lordship of Christ. He's not Lord just because we call him Lord. That's the way it is often with religious sects or with groups. A man is esteemed simply because enough people are willing to call him such. And the authority then of that one comes from those who are willing to designate him as such. Christ is not Lord in terms of hero worship. Sinful men make all kinds of individuals worthy of the title Lord. And again, they're merely called it because they have enough willing subjects that are willing to esteem them, to further their cause, to crown them, and to grant them whatever victories are necessary. All of that fails to get at the heart of what does it mean that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord by virtue of his esteemed position as the Son of God. And more specifically, the only begotten Son of God. There are no other inferior lords of which he is Lord. There is no one that can compare to him. He stands in a position that is alone and distinct as Lord. And again, he's not Lord because we decide to serve him. His Lordship is original. Everyone else who has a position of authority has a derived position. But he is the original. The only begotten Son as the revelation of the triune God. And so with Thomas, our confession is, my Lord and my God. John 20, verse 28.
And we understand that connection. Because He's God, He's the one whom I acknowledge as my Lord. It's the same when Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's the Lord. You need to call upon His name. And only those who call upon His name know salvation. Here in Romans 14, especially verses 8 and 9, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. The concern of the chapter in Romans is that we esteem ourselves as Lord. And we do so by judging others and looking down on others. And we're reminded, no, there's only one who's Lord. And that's Jesus Christ. And you must answer to him. And you must only judge in accordance with his will. God the Father bestowed upon Jesus Christ the honor of being Lord and King over all for the sake of His church. And that Lordship is which we celebrate. As sons and daughters, we're not then sons of God in the same way as which Jesus is the Son of God. We recognize that. Jesus is the only begotten. He's of the same essence. Of God. We're adopted children who don't share that same essence. As adopted children, we bow to His sovereign rule. And we do so with thankfulness. We deserve to be cast off. We know that we deserve to be treated as those who are children of the devil. But God has taken us and graciously translated us into His family. And now, we're thankful children. And we delight in the wonder and the joy of the blessedness that He's placed us in. That lordship comes in the way of God's decree. That's the emphasis of the Bible. That Jehovah God decreed that Jesus would be Lord. And that gets at the essence of the origin of that lordship. It's of God. There are especially three passages in the Bible that stand out in expressing that decree of Jehovah God. Acts 2 verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is God's decree. God has taken that one whom you crucified, He's made Him Lord. Romans 14 here talks about the same thing in verse 9. For to this end. So it establishes the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. How did He become Lord? He became Lord in this way. By dying, by rising and being revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now that's crucially important. There's a sense in which the second person of the Trinity always was Lord. But we're not talking here about the second person of the Trinity as such. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity come into human flesh as Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity always was Lord by virtue of the Godhead. But now, the passage here says, Jesus Christ, 
very God and man, He was made Lord. And how was He made Lord? When was He made Lord? From eternity, God decreed that that would take place in the way of His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His being placed now at God's right hand. Psalm 110 expresses the same. The Lord says to His Christ, In glory I enthrone thee. And he talks about the fact that until the foes whom you've led in triumph will acknowledge you as their sovereign king, God's decree goes out to his own son, his son in the flesh now, that Jesus Christ would be Lord. We must maintain, beloved, that lordship of Jesus Christ as a sovereign decree of Jehovah God. This is part of the benefit and blessing of singing the Psalms. The Psalms, like no other songs, express this truth throughout the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we read the Psalms, we read of the struggles and the difficulties of the child of God. God moving David marvelously to write of all the experiences that characterize our lives. And in the midst of all those experiences and all those struggles, what is the truth that again and again comforts the child of God? It's this truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that sovereignty, not just of God, comes out beautifully and marvelously through the Psalms. And so the Psalms, like no other songs, express that lordship of Jesus Christ. Expressing the fact that the troubles, the struggles you experience are not by chance. They're all ordained by Almighty God. And that Jesus Christ as Lord is the rock. He's the one who comforts. He's the one who upholds us. He's the one to whom all strength, all might is attributed. And so we sing those psalms. We rejoice in those psalms. As we get older, they mean more and more to us. And we realize that Reason is these psalms direct us to the one who is Lord and the one to whom we owe our all. He rules and he's the one who has made us his willing servants. That secondly, not only is he Lord, he's made us willing servants. That we are the property of Jesus Christ is the song of the redeemed church. This is the victory that is ours. And so, beloved, this is a very personal confession. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Even as Christ has of authority over everything that takes place in the world, the bugs, the storms, the animals, He owns me. My possessions belong to Him. He owns my will. He owns my thoughts. He owns my time. He owns my spouse, my children, all of life, everything in the past, everything in the future. It all belongs to Jesus Christ. Now there's a great difference between the ownership of a slave and master and this ownership to Christ. Christ purchases us in love and he makes us his own. Now what's the comfort of that? No danger, as great as that danger may be, can harm us. And again, this is the beautiful and triumphant song of the Psalms. Though I fall, 
yet He holds me by His hand. Though I be cast down, yet He picks me up. That nothing, nothing can separate me from the wonder of His love. Now naturally, we're very afraid. We're afraid of the events that take place in nature. We're afraid of storms as they roll in closer to us. There's a fear that rises up within us with regard to the economy and regarding all the things that are taking place in the world about us. When we're not able to control our future, there's a fear that takes hold of us because of the unknown. By nature, we're afraid. And by nature, that fear takes hold of us at times. The power of the devil in our lives is frightening. We see how quickly he gets us to fall into sin. We see how quickly he ruins relationships. No enemy. No enemy, no matter how crafty, can bring about my downfall. Because Jesus Christ is my Lord. The state of the economy can't affect me because Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am eternally the property of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against me. Beloved, what a wonderful confession. That confession, my Lord, is a confession that causes us to weep with tears of joy. I am weak. I am sinful. In a moment, I would fall. But my Lord, He is Jesus Christ, the Almighty, sitting on the right hand of God, the one who rules all things for my good and for my salvation. Words cannot convey the comfort, the strength that the child of God receives in those words. My Lord. And eternity is not going to be long enough for us to show our joy and our gratitude for that relationship. My Lord. To all eternity, the multitudes of the redeemed are going to be honoring and praising and exalting Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, how does that come about? How is it that I am privileged to know Jesus Christ as my Lord? Because God redeemed me. Now, what does that mean? From early on, we learn what that means. If you need to be redeemed, that means you're in bondage. And what is the reality? By nature, I'm in bondage to the devil. I'm slave to the devil. And as slaves of the devil, the devil has nothing but misery in mind. He wants to deceive me. And he's constantly trying to lead me into the way of misery, damnation, and hell. Romans 1 describes not only the wicked world's attitude toward God, but the attitude of every man, every woman, by nature. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. Every man, woman, and child that's ever lived knows that there's a God and knows that that God is Lord. But they won't acknowledge it. They suppress that knowledge in unbelief. And that's the way we are too, by nature. We suppress that knowledge. We hold the truth in unrighteousness. We're not willing to glorify Him as God. We want to be Lord. And so we want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way so that we can esteem ourselves We glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful. 
but became vain in our imaginations and our foolish heart was darkened. That's who and what we are of ourselves. But Jesus Christ paid the price to redeem us. He paid the ransom. And he paid it not to the devil, he paid it to God in order that Jehovah God would free us from the bondage of that sin and the judgment that we deserve. He did it by the shedding of his own blood. The Son of God shed his own blood so that I could be freed from the devil. He reached down into my misery, into the darkness of my sin and my death, and he purchased me from the bondage of Satan. And he didn't just pay some kind of external price. He paid his own life. He entered the house of the strong man, as the Psalms put it, who had taken us into captivity, the house of the devil himself, and he spoiled him. He did it, as verse 9 points out, through his death, his resurrection. The devil didn't receive payment. He wasn't the rightful owner. Jesus paid the price that we owed to God the Father. And he delivered us. And he made us his own property. Jesus Christ makes us his property so that we belong to God not merely by virtue of creation. All men that are created owe their existence to God. We are his property in love. And again, that's the emphasis of verse 8. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. That's the glorious confession that we make. And His is a lordship of love. This is the greatest lordship anyone can ever experience. That you have one who loved you with such a great love that He gave His own life in your place in order that He might keep and preserve you to all eternity. And he obtained then for us the right by which we now love him. We trust in him. We serve him. We obey him. And we glorify him as our Lord. In the midst of our struggles, our challenges, we keep looking back to him. The fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of his flock, of his sheep, is the motivation of pastors, elders, and deacons as they care for the flock. Of Jesus Christ. These are blood-bought children of our Heavenly Father. This is our motivation to love one another for Christ's sake. These whom God places with us in the body of Christ are fellow saints for whom Jesus Christ shed His blood and paid the price of redemption. This moves us as husbands to love our wives, wives our husbands, because Our spouse is a blood-bought child of the king. Sometimes we read books and we read about the release of prisoners of war. They were held captive for years and we read of all the struggles, all the difficulties that they endured. And then finally they were released and the overwhelming joy that was theirs. Beloved, may that help us understand a bit the beauty of this truth. God has taken us 
from an infinitely more miserable situation than any prisoner of war has ever experienced. And God has given us freedom. He set us free. And our joy then is a joy unspeakable. Never will we ever go back to that bondage. Never again will we have to experience the horror of that hell that we deserve. Because we're not just taken out of that misery. We're now planted in the family of the one who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Who loves us with an everlasting love. And beloved, is there anything more beautiful than that? The chief idea of lordship is that Jesus Christ possesses you and me. And he rules us as his possession. That's a lordship of love. We call him Lord, and that's what we confess. He is responsible for me. What a beautiful idea. All the responsibility for my salvation is found in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm without any kind of responsibility. It means that Jesus is responsible for me before God. And that he's interceding before the Father. In such a way that he says, that man, that woman, that young person, that child is mine. I'm responsible for him. I'm responsible for her. I died. I poured out my blood for that one. And Jesus Christ then is our sole proprietor. We're his property. Completely. There's no one else that has a 10%, 15%, 50% interest in us. My heart and all of its issues are his. My mind. And all of its desires belong to Him. My ears, my eyes, the things I hear, the things I listen to, the things that I see, everything belongs to Him. My speech. And so that the whole of my being is His. To be used in His service alone as Lord. That's a delight, beloved. That's what gives us a reason to live. This doesn't make us miserable. This doesn't crimp our style. It does according to the flesh. According to the flesh now, it creates some troubles because now I need to deny myself. I need to deny my own desires, my own ambitions. But it gives joy in my spirit. I am worth something. I am valuable in someone's eyes. I am valuable and I'm worthwhile. And that value and worth is found in the wonder that he's adopted me and he's taken me into his family and he will love me now to all eternity. It humbles us because we realize there are others who are better than us. There are others who are more deserving than we. That my value, my worth is not found in myself. It's not found in what I've accomplished, what I can do. It's found alone in Jesus Christ. My value is not dependent upon the abuse that I've endured and the wrong that's been done unto me and the way others have treated me. My value is in Christ who loved me with an everlasting love and who gave his life for me. I am redeemed. I've been bought. And that lordship of Jesus Christ is entirely exclusive. There's no room for anyone else. He is my Lord. You can understand why saints through the ages, when they were required to say, 
No, Jesus is your Lord, yes, but you also have to say Caesar is your Lord. And you have to put him on a par. They said, no, I would rather choose boiling oil or to be burned at stake than to deny that Jesus is my only Lord. He is Lord alone. Next to Jesus, there's no other. Beloved, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord? Do you know the unspeakable joy of that confession? And are you and am I willing to submit to Him as Lord? There are times we have doubts, concerns about our salvation. Then we need to go back to this. Do you believe that Jesus is God, the only begotten Son of God? Do you believe that the Son of God is Jesus Christ, an anointed Savior, Lord. If you confess that Jesus is God, and you confess that He is Lord, then, beloved, your doubts are dispelled. Any doubts are denial that He is God, a denial of His divine power and Godhead. By faith we confess, He is God, and He is my Lord. He has saved. He has delivered me. And my salvation that is not dependent upon anything of myself. He is responsible for getting me to heaven. And He will not fail. As Lord, He will present all of His adopted brothers and sisters spotless in eternal glory on the basis of His perfect sacrifice on their behalf. The loving lordship of Jesus Christ manifests itself in our hearts as we confess him as such. We submit to him and we live unto him. We worship. This is what draws us to the Lord's house. He draws us to himself to praise and to thank him. And we know how that works a bit. He calls us by his mighty voice. He issues that sovereign, irresistible call. And He draws us to Himself. And we come. And by faith we confess, My Lord and my God. And we submit to Him. Not just one part of our life, the whole of our life. We submit our jobs to Him by choosing an occupation and a job in which we will be able to glorify Him and promote the things of His kingdom. We submit to Him as we seek a mate because our desire now is to marry in the Lord. We submit to Him as we work, as we go to college because our desire is to develop skills that we can use in His service and for His glory. There's not one inch of our lives that is not subject to His divine, sovereign Lordship. He is Lord of every aspect of my life. I am a slave to him in every part of my life. And that slavery is a willing expression and submission to him. As he works that faith in our hearts and he gives us by his spirit, not only to confess him as Lord, but to rejoice in that confession. Lovingly submitting to his divine will. Making all of our decisions in life in subjection to his word. And teaching that to our children, that they make decisions in life on the basis of what Jesus Christ as their Lord requires. And to see the importance then of them being taught and their education, including such. 
that they grow in their understanding not only of what God's will entails, but also the importance of constantly confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that Jesus Christ is the one who knows better than they what is the way, the trajectory of their lives. This confession, beloved, is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 makes that clear. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. That's the privilege of this confession. How is it that you and I say that Jesus is Lord? It's because God, by His Spirit, is at work in your and my hearts. The ability to call Jesus Lord is not given to all men, all women, all young people and children. Now we know eventually everyone will confess Jesus as Lord. That comes out in verse 11. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. God will cause every knee, every tongue on judgment day to confess Jesus is Lord. And many will do so being sent to hell. But the fact of Jesus' gracious lordship in love is known only to those who are the sons and daughters of God. God has adopted us into his family and he gives us that blessing of his spirit. It pleased him to deliver them who all their life long were subject to bondage that they might be made his children. And Hebrews 2 verse 13 expresses that. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. The Holy Spirit makes us able and worthy of calling upon the Father as sons. We understand that distinction. Jesus, again, is the only natural son. He's the only begotten son of the same essence. We are adopted children. And that distinction is established here carefully in question 33. We are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. As the children of God, we never lose sight of that fact. So many don't dare lay hold on that. They don't dare confess that they're God's children. The Bible clearly reveals this truth. And the apostles, by inspiration, confessed it. I am a child of God. And adoption in Jesus Christ is the only possibility for that confession. Now, how did that happen again? God didn't go to an agency and pick out the nicest group from the files. That's sometimes what a couple does today. You go to Romania or Ukraine, go to an adoption agency, they give you a book, you look through the book, and you pick out a child out of the book that you think would be one who could be brought into your family. That's not the way in which God proceeded. God didn't choose us on the basis of anything that we could do. Tragically, sometimes little children are brought out to do little things, little tricks, that would hopefully appeal them to the couple that's looking to adopt a child. That's not how God conducted that adoption. He didn't just choose strangers. He chose enemies. While we were yet enemies. And Ezekiel 16 records humbly our condition as that of a child lying in its blood, given over to death, having no hope. This adoption took place in God's counsel from eternity, realized in time. 
and realized again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he reconciled us unto himself. And then in time, when he worked regeneration in our hearts and gave us the new life that's from above. That adoption never changes. There are some parents who come disenchanted with adoption. Their child ends up turning out wayward. And therefore, they take legal measures even, perhaps, to cut themselves off from that child in time. God will never do that to you or to me. This adoption is unchangeable. It's everlasting. And that's a comfort to us. God looks upon us as his children. And nothing can remove that commitment that he's made to us. And everything that takes place in our lives serves that adoption. That's the beautiful confession that the Westminster Confession makes on the handout under chapter 12 of adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's the privileged position that Jehovah God has given. Never to forsake us, to keep and preserve us through the trials, through the afflictions, which He as our Father ordains for our good in order finally to bring us to the fullness of that joy and salvation and eternal glory. Jesus establishes this lordship in our hearts. He makes it so that we believe it. He causes our minds and our wills to be in tune with his mind and his will. And he works in us that spirit of joy and thankfulness so that our response is not that of rebellion, but our response by faith is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That was the humble answer of Samuel as he stood before Jehovah God as just a young child taught by Eli. When you hear God speak, this is what you say. Lord, thy servant heareth. What wilt thou have me to do? That's the Christian faith. The Christian faith isn't a set of conditions to fulfill. It's not legalism with do's and don'ts. That's the point of this entire chapter. We don't rise up in judgment against brother against brother, judging on the basis of our ideas. The Christian faith isn't established by this man saying, oh, we only may eat meat. This person say, we only may do that. The lordship of Jesus Christ is not a lordship of compulsion. The scribes and Pharisees had law upon law, precept upon precept. Obedience to their law could not produce one Christian. And Jesus emphasized that again and again. And it's emphasized here in this chapter in verse 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You stand before God. And what do you have to claim? We stand before God and we cling to Christ as our Lord. As the one alone who's able to preserve and keep me. As the one who's responsible for me. As the one through whom we will be kept and preserved. 
And the foundation of our Christian faith then is built upon Jesus Christ. His perfect sacrifice on our behalf and the wonder of His Spirit in our hearts. And that's verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things that make for peace and the things wherewith we may edify one another. They're commandments from God. Those commandments are a delight as they open the way by which we're privileged to show our love for God and our love for one another. We search the Word in order to determine how can we more fully show our praise through obedience? How can we more fully walk in peace and edify my brother, my sister? Faith embraces Christ as Lord and looks to Him for strength to live as His servants. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things Thou hast done for us. Laying a hold upon us, poor sinners, giving us to know the highest glory possible. Strengthen us. Comfort us by faith. May Jesus Christ, as Lord, be the source of our constant comfort and encouragement, knowing that our Lord is close to us that He lives within our hearts, that He will never forsake or leave us, but that that He will lead us to glory. Amen.